0: You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, good morning, RCC family. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're still getting used to this online rhythm. So uh, here's what I want you to do as we're going through the text this morning. Uh, I can't hear your amens. Uh, I can't hear your laughter. So uh, as we go through, I want you, if you want to say amen, or if you want to laugh, or if you want to just say, I'm glad I'm here, I want you to like or love or comment as we go along. That'll be our way of interacting with one another as we work through the text and uh what i want to know if you're not already turned to the first semi one go ahead and turn there but what i want to know right now is what has been your quarantine show i know we have a lot more free time a lot of us have dove into like one particular show uh during this quarantine And uh, if you would say Tiger King, I just want to apologize to you on behalf of all humanity. Uh, Not all of us are like that. There's some normal people in this world. Uh, But my quarantine show, my wife and I have jumped into uh, Better Call Saul. It's a show about this slimy lawyer, a really interesting show. And uh, what I've told my wife as we're watching is actually Better Call Saul is a spin-off from another show, one of the best shows of all time, a show called Breaking Bad. And my wife hasn't seen Breaking Bad. So we're watching Better Call Saul and she's just seeing everything for the first time on the service level and she's loving it. She's really enjoying it, wants to see, you know, probably like an episode a night, we're just, you know, slowly working our way through. But I'm watching it, and she's enjoying it, but I'm like seeing all of these little nuggets and, and links to better, uh, Breaking Bad, the original show, and I'm like, man, this is so rich. Like, is that okay? That's how that character ended up here. Oh my gosh, that, like it's so, so much depth to the world and to the show, both shows. And my wife has no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm like, yeah, they. Better Call Saul is good, but knowing the background of Breaking Bad makes Better Call Saul so much richer. And as I was was, uh, talking to her about this, I said, you know, this reminds me so much of the Bible, like these two shows. Like, yeah, the New Testament is so great and we should read it all the time. But knowing the background of the Old Testament, as we read our New Testament, makes the Gospel and makes the New Testament so much richer. And so today, what I want us to do, and and as we progress through this series in 1 Samuel, is I want us to watch a little Breaking Bad together. We're going to start a series in the Old Testament so that we can better understand the Gospel. So we can better understand Jesus. Jesus. And uh, Jesus, after he resurrects, and, you know, last week we spent a week celebrating the resurrection during Easter. Well, Jesus, after he resurrects, he teaches his disciples right when he first sees them in Luke's gospel. If the, resurrected, if the resurrected Jesus showed up to you today and said, I got something I want to teach you, it's probably pretty important. This is what he says to his disciples. Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened his disciples' minds to understand the Scriptures. So the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, that's the first half of your Bible. That's what we would call the Old Testament. This is the scripture that was written hundreds of years before Jesus even came to earth. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, says to his disciples, all of those books, your entire Old Testament, is pointing to me. Jesus says, if you're reading your Bible correctly, you'll see me in each Old Testament story. You'll see how these little Old Testament stories fit in the big storyline of the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, who came to save sinners. In essence, Jesus tells us, you shouldn't just read your Bible front to back. You know, Genesis to Revelation, that's great, but you shouldn't just read that way. Jesus tells us we should also read our Bibles back to front. Finding Him as the fulfillment and main character of the entire Bible. And so, that's what we find ourselves today in the books of First and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel are in our Old Testament, and we're going to see how they point to Jesus, and how they give us hope this morning. Now we're doing both 1 and 2 Samuel, because originally they were actually just one book, all on one scroll. So we're doing them together and uh, if you're here with us and you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity or even new to our church I just want to give you a welcome. Welcome. We're so glad you could join us Uh, It's good to be in your home. I like your home. It's very nice Uh, We did this last week. I'm gonna give you another digital hug. We don't know each other probably, but here you go Uh, I don't get to do that. I don't get to be in your home or here on Sunday morning, so Thank you for welcoming me And uh, if you're new and you're not uh, familiar with Christianity, you may have never heard of First and Second Samuel. And I just want to tell you, that's okay. We love having new folks in our church. We're glad you joined us. And as we walk through this book, you're going to see that so much of it you can relate to. Like there are a lot of real life issues in 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's full of stories that we identify with. In so many ways, 1st and 2nd Samuel are like a mirror to the modern world. You're gonna see things like uh, a broken society with serious trouble. You'll see men who abuse women. You'll see wives who are betrayed by husbands. You'll see children who have gone wild. You'll see real life issues like infertility. You'll see corrupt religious leaders, conspiracy to murder, deceitful politicians, power struggles, and even the horrors of war. A lot of relatable things, but ultimately First and 2 Samuel is about one primary thing. Israel's desperate search for a king who will lead them well. You see, 1 and 2 Samuel picks up right after this period of the Judges. If you look at your Old Testament, you'll see a book called Judges. And in the book of Judges, Israel, God's people are split into multiple different factions, led by multiple judges. And that was a period of religious and political turmoil. Tribes within Israel are fighting amongst themselves, nearly wiping each other out. And the people are rebelling in sin through idolatry and disbelief. And Israel, God's people, the people who are supposed to be set apart, a light to the nations, suddenly look like all the other nations. They don't look like God's people. And uh, I think fittingly, the book of Judges, it ends with this verse. Like this is literally the last verse in the book of Judges. Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we got total anarchy at this point. Israel has become like the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. There are no rules. You just survive. And 1 Samuel picks up, right after Judges, with Israel desperately wanting and needing a leader. They want a king who can help them get out of this mess. But what we're going to see in these two books, First and 2 Samuel, is that there is no truly good king. No matter how promising that candidate is, like the first king, we'll see is a guy named Saul who's a good-looking guy, good leader, the people like him. He won't measure up. And then after him comes a guy named David, who is God's appointed king. He's a man after God's own heart. And even he is gonna tragically disappoint us in the end. And at the end of the book, at the end of the book, we're gonna be left with this big question mark. Is that it? Is, this is all God? Saul and David were the best kings we could hope for, and look what happened. Is there no hope for us? And that's where the story applies to you. All of us, you see, are searching for a king. We want somebody who will bring order to our lives. We want someone who will guarantee us safety, fulfillment, and stability. I go over quite often what those things might be for you. You might be seeking seeking a king and perhaps a marriage. You think if, if I could just get married or if I could just be married happily with the person I'm with, life would be good. I could handle anything if I had somebody by my side who supported me, who loved me as I am. Some of you think, that king is being established in your career, if I could just be really competent in my job, or if I can just secure a good job with a good pay, with, with an understanding boss, then I would be able to handle anything. If I could just be recognized in my field for as the talent that I have, man, life would be good. For some of you, especially right now, it's health. If I can just get down to this weight, or if I can just bench this amount, then things will be good. If I could just be healed of this one ailment, or if this pandemic would just end. Whatever that thing is that you're looking for, for stability and fulfillment and true happiness, that is your king. And the point of the story in First and 2 Samuel is to see Israel asking over and over again, Who is the king that we can go to for what we need? And first and second Samuel is supposed to get us to ask that same question: Who is the king that we go to for what we need? And the book's going to show us that the king is coming, but he's not Saul, and he's not David, and he's not your marriage, and he's not your career. His name is Jesus, and he is the King of all kings. Every other king is going to disappoint you. Every other king over promises and under delivers. Jesus promises and delivers every time. We'll keep going back to that theme throughout the book. So let's jump in. 1 Samuel 1 begins kind of oddly, if you turn there with me. A book about the rise and fall of Israel's great kings. How does it start? with some unknown random woman in the hill country named Hannah. And even though this woman is unknown and seemingly not connected at all to the story of Israel's great kings, Hannah is going to teach us an incredible lesson this morning. And it's a lesson we're going to see reverberated throughout the rest of the book. That Jesus is the only king you can turn to that can truly provide stability, fulfillment, and true happiness. Verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, son of Eahu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. So the first thing we learn about Hannah is she shared her husband with another woman. Now, let's pause just for a moment. Sidetrack. I know everybody's first question, especially if this is your first time in church. There's polygamy in the Bible? I did not know that. If this is your first sermon, you're probably, all your fears about church are being confirmed right now. These people are weird. No, but I promise we are normal people. I have one wife, I'm very happy. The Bible does not promote polygamy, even though we see it here. Let me explain what's going on. Whenever you read your Bible, especially in the Old Testament like we're doing now, we need to keep two categories in mind. Prescriptive and descriptive. Let me say that one more time. When you see things like polygamy in the Bible, you've got to keep these categories in mind. Prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive means God is saying through His Word, you should do this too. Descriptive means this is God through His Word just sharing the details or the facts of the story. Later on in 1 Samuel, we're going to read that Saul, the king, poops in a cave. I know. We have a lot to look forward to. Just hang on. We'll get there. That doesn't mean that God's people should go start poop caves. That is not prescriptive. That is a descriptive detail of the story. Here in 1 Samuel 1, the text we just read, Hannah, a woman filled with hurt and disappointment, what does she do? She cries out to God in prayer. That's prescriptive. We should do that too. Now that begs the question, how do we know what's prescriptive and what's descriptive when we read the Bible? Well, this is the number one rule of hermeneutics, the number one rule when you read your Bible. You ready? Interpret scripture with scripture. Interpret Scripture with Scripture, especially when you come to a hard text or something you don't understand or something that brings you confusion or doesn't seem to match up with everything else. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Find another text on the same topic and see if it sheds light on your question. So, for example, polygamy, which we just saw here in 1 Samuel 1, is that prescriptive or is that descriptive? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God invents marriage, he says this in Genesis two twenty-four: Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice wife there is singular, not plural. A man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his singular wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's what God says when he mentions a marriage. And there are many other texts that reinforce the same idea. Jesus and Matthew reinforces the same idea. Ephesians 5, talking about marriage, says between man and woman. So polygamy, obviously, when we read the Bible, would be descriptive here. Elkanah's choice to have two wives would be his choice and one contrary to God's design for marriage. So polygamy is not necessarily what's being prescribed here. Verse two, we see the name of one of Elkanah's wives is a woman named Hannah, and the name of the other wife is Peninnah. Her name is Peninnah, the second wife. Or if you want, you can call her Panini, which in the Hebrew means grilled sandwich at Panera. (laughs) And we're not going to like Panini very much. Uh, Peninnah, the other wife that Hannah shares Elkanah with, she's not a very kind woman. And Hannah, the the wife we're focusing on here, she doesn't just have the misfortune of being one of two wives. Look at the rest of verse 2. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So Hannah is victim of the cruelest fate any ancient woman can endure. Infertility. I was speaking with a member of our church who for years has struggled with infertility. And she just opened up with me and asked her, like, what's infertility like? And she told me, the best way I can describe it is it's phases of anger, sadness, shame, Feelings of punishment and loneliness all wrapped up into one experience. And people are always saying the wrong things to you. Like, when are you guys going to have kids? Well, you can watch my kid for a while. Maybe that'll make you feel better. (laughs) Or it'll happen soon, when it very well may not. Man, there's no woman in any culture that once that kind of uh, struggle. But in those days, infertility was an even bigger deal than it is now. Having lots of kids in the ancient Near East, in Hannah's time, was essential to having a, a good life. And the reason is because the society was agrarian, which meant the more sons you had, the more kids you had, the more workers you had to work your land. And so the more income you could generate for your family, which would mean a higher status in society and more security. And remember, this is an age where there aren't any social security payments or 401ks or retirement homes. So the more kids you had, the more secure you were at the end of your life. People are going to take care of you when you get older. And for the nation itself, economic and military health was completely dependent on lots of kids being born. So bearing children was a matter of life or death for families and nations. So women who could bear lots of kids, they were seen as heroes. But women who couldn't bear any children at all were seen by the community as utterly useless. An Old Testament commentator named Walter Brueggemann, says, Barrenness in in any ancient text or narrative is the effective metaphor of hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself or for your family or for your people. Barrenness meant there was no human power to invent a future at all. Today, most people don't think like that. Today, like, well, at least you have your job to fall back on, or, you know, people care more about, like, where you graduated from, or how you look. But if you think of it from Hannah's perspective, in a culture where value and security was determined by family, and Hannah can't have any kids. So practically speaking, Hannah has no significance, no life, and no hope. And to make matters even worse, not only is she infertile, her rival, Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, who is likely insecure because I think Elkanah uh, prefers Hannah a little bit, Peninnah rubs her kids in Hannah's face. Look at verse 6. And her rival, this is Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. So it went on year by year. As often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Peninnah provoked her grievously to irritate her. Now, the, the irritate here, this word, is not like, you know, my Grubhub order arrived cold. Not that kind of irritating. Like, that, that's annoying. But at least I can eat it. And here the word irritate here means to thunder or to roar. It's the word you would use to describe being stuck in a hurricane. That's what Hannah felt like on the inside. And interestingly, this is the only place in the Bible where this word irritate is applied to someone's interior condition. It's usually used to describe a storm. Hannah is deeply distressed. In verse 7, it says, she's so depressed, she can't eat. You ever been so sad that you can't even put food in your mouth? And this was continual, it says, year after year. Penelope was always looking for ways to remind Hannah of her hopelessness. Hey, Hannah, would you mind doing the dishes tonight? I'm so tired. These four kids are wearing me out. You can imagine Penner's kids asking, Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have kids? Oh, uh, she can't. Oh, Hannah, guess what? I'm pregnant! Again! Over and over again. Uh, we, my wife and I and our family, we live in the city, in Baltimore City, and uh, if you live in the city, you know sometimes at night, you'll be sleeping, it'll be like 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, and all of a sudden you'll hear <makes noise> You know, the car alarm going off, the security thing, and apparently the owner of that car never has ears, because it goes on forever. And you're just trying to sleep, the kids are waking up, the dog is barking <makes noise> Non-stop. It's so annoying. Penina was like the annoying honking noise over and over and over again to Hannah, smugly just rubbing her kids in Hannah's face, driving Hannah to tears and despair. Hannah already knew. like She didn't need Penana to remind her that she was hopeless according to society. She was a failure. But every day Penana threw it in her face. And Elkanah, her husband, he wants to help. He wants to remedy the situation. You've got to love Elkanah, man. Like, pretty nice guy. Pretty cool guy, I think. A little dumb. Look what he says in verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Baby, what's going on? Why are you not eating? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah has some real self-confidence here. (laughs) He thinks he's Fabio. He says to her, Baby, I know you're upset, but you got me. Aren't I better than ten sons? (laughs) Bro, we need to get you some counseling lessons. (laughs) That is not the most self-aware thing to say to a woman. Especially since Hannah doesn't really have Elkanah, her husband. She has to share him with Ben and Not the most self-aware thing to say. And if you look at verse 5, it says Elkanel would give Hannah double portions of food. Which is kind of a weird way to show affection. Sitting there with your two eyes at the dinner table. Like, "Hey, I got you, girl. Just two scoops of mashed potatoes. Love you, baby. That's not going to help me. But what I want you to see here, what is, what is happening is... This is the same as your life, Hannah's situation. Maybe not all the details, but the general principles. Hannah lives in a world where significance and security for a woman is determined by how many kids she has. And while Hannah is childless, which means in her culture, she's worthless and has no security. And meanwhile, Peninnah keeps reminding Hannah that she'll never be valuable if she doesn't have kids. She'll never truly be happy. And Elkanah comes in and he tries to offer her romantic salvation, telling her he can fill the void in her soul with his love. And is this not the same thing that happens to us? Like, do you see the similarities here? We live in a world full of penitents that tell us that we get significance from what we produce. What degree we have, where we got that degree from, the size of our house, how good looking we are, how well behaved our kids are acting. And because of that, some of us don't measure up. We're not where we want to be, and we feel worthless. Like Hannah, you may have laid down at night full of jealousy, unable to eat or sleep. And so, what do we do when these penanas remind us of what we don't have? We turn to the Elkanahs. It's not what we really want, but hey, it's something, right? Elkanah, in his ignorance, comes to Hannah and says, Come to me, I'll fill that void, I'll numb your pain. I got you, girl. And some of you, whether you're self-aware of it or not, have turned to Elkanah's. In your unhappiness, in your discontentment, you've turned to something like romantic salvation, like this hot guy, or exciting sex with her. It'll at least help me feel better. It'll be better than 10 sons. And maybe it's not romance. Maybe your Elkanah is something else. You turn to something else to numb your sadness, like alcohol, or prescription drugs, or shopping. But Hannah, no matter how hard she tries, her tears will not go away. Because she isn't getting what she really wants. A kid. And Elkanah isn't enough to satisfy her. Don't you see, Hannah's story is replicated in all of us. But the story shifts in verse 9. Hannah does something, verse 9, that's going to change the course of her life forever. And it's going to change the course of Israel's history forever. And it'll change the history of redemptive salvation for everyone forever. What's her decision? Verse 9, she goes to God in prayer. This is what she does. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose Now, when it says Hannah rose, that doesn't mean like she got up from the dinner table and left. Rose here in the Hebrew means she took decisive action. She made a decision. And the decision was to go to God in prayer. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And in her prayer, Hannah does something extraordinary. She addresses Yahweh, the God of the universe, Assuming that the broken heart of a relatively obscure, barren woman in the rural hill country of Ephraim matters to him. And it does. God hears her. This Hannah here does what the psalmist describes in Psalm 6:6. She it says, the psalmist says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Hannah takes her deepest longings and her worst fears and her most nagging frustrations, and she just goes and talks to God about them. She just cries with God. And she believed the truth of the rest of the psalm. In Psalm 6, 8. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. For the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Hannah knew our God is a God who hears the sounds of our weeping. That's such good news here. Hannah is our school teacher in honest prayer. You and I need to be doing this too. We can pour out our sobs and our griefs and our perplexities at God's feet unashamed and just share how we're honestly feeling. And our Lord, He can handle our tears. It doesn't make Him nervous. He doesn't struggle with what to say. He doesn't get angry with us. You can just unload your distress at His feet. And if Hannah here can do this, how much more can you and I on this side of the cross? You and I today are God's blood-bought children. God sent Jesus to make us His kids. So we can approach God with even more boldness than Hannah. Hebrews 4. need. Jesus has given us access to the Father and we can boldly approach Him in prayer. So we can take our sobs and our disappointments to Him and then it says that He gives us the mercy and the grace we need to help us in our time of need. That's what Hannah does. That's what we need to do with our biggest troubles. And the reason this is such a big deal is because Hannah, while she prays, something happens to her. Something changes for Hannah. And, and towards the end of her prayer, you're going to see that she makes an incredible vow to God. That changes everything about our life. Verse 11. And Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah says here, she vows here God, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you all the days of his life. And this is not the prayer that you have probably prayed. I know I've prayed it, like, God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I'm going to start going to church. I promise everything's going to change. And you know, and like God gets you out of the mess and nothing really changes. This is not that prayer. She is making what's called a Nazarite vow. This is an ancient vow that we see in the Bible. And she's making it on behalf of the son she's hoping for. A Nazarite vow was a lifelong commitment to God. Have you ever seen Star Wars? You know, like when a little kid is picked to be a Padawan learner, like a Jedi in training? What do they do to that kid who's a Jedi in training? That kid, if they want to become a Jedi, they have to leave their home, leave their family, be taken under a master, and brought to the Jedi Council to be trained for a lifelong Jedi service. And similarly... When you made a Nazarite vow, that meant you gave your entire life away. You renounced all your family property, you went to live and grow up in the temple, and you essentially, you switched families. When Hannah here takes a Nazarite vow for her unborn child, that hasn't even been conceived yet, she was renouncing her hold on everything you would have wanted a kid for. Taking a Nazarite vow here meant Hannah wouldn't get the joy of having her son grow up in her house. She wouldn't get the emotional joy of having him around. She wouldn't get things like family pictures. She wouldn't get baseball games. She wouldn't get movie nights. And she wouldn't get him to take care of her in her old age. See, this vow and this prayer is not some sentimental rhetoric or some form of bargaining with God. Like, God, give me a son and I'll do anything for you. Or, God, give me a son and we can share him. You know, I'll take him, you'll take him. You know, that kind of thing. You you know, like you might have prayed that kind of prayer before. Like, God, if you give me a huge house, and I'm going to host small group in it once a month. As if God's hearing like, whoa, small groups once a month in your house? That is a great deal. I'm in. Here's the house. (laughs) No, the Nazarite vow meant... A complete renouncement of everything Hannah hoped to obtain in having a job. Now watch this. When Hannah was done praying, look at verse 18. Then the woman, after she finished praying, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Notice... This verse occurs before she's pregnant. At the end of the chapter, we're going to find out she does get pregnant. But this statement about Hannah getting up and eating and her face no longer being sad, this is before she gets pregnant. That's a very important order. Hannah doesn't pray, then get pregnant, then have joy. No, no, no. The text tells us Hannah prays, has joy in God alone, no matter what happens and then gets pregnant. What's happened here? All her life, Hannah has sought joy in having a kid. Now in prayer here, she finds it somewhere else. Look at the prayer she prays in chapter 2, and she'll tell you where she finds her joy now. 1 Samuel 2 is a song she writes right after she gives her son Samuel back to God. She says, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is, I'm I'm like blowing my horn, I'm so excited about the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, God. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God, no son, no family, nothing satisfies me like, like you do. strength is now in God, not in a kid. She goes on in that prayer to talk about God's unfathomable wisdom, His strength, His beauty, His holiness, and His compassion for the small, broken, sinful people. This, she tells us, and she sings, is her ultimate treasure. And because she has found that God, she no longer depends on family for that. This prayer, this vow, is Hannah's repentance and salvation. She found her life and her security and identity and significance in God alone. And no longer dependent on any family for it. Hannah was free. Essentially, Hannah prays, God, I'm still asking you for a son. But all my life, I've asked you for a son to make up for some deficiency in my life. This time, I'm asking you for a son, not for me, but for you. You're my sufficiency, God. You're my treasure. And so if you give me a son, I'm giving him right back to you because you're enough. And then God answers her prayer and gives her a son. And she names him Samuel, which means offspring of God. And Samuel would grow up as a priest and become Israel's greatest prophet. And a prophet that would one day anoint David as the king over Israel. And as we head towards our end this morning, do you really want your mind blown? Scripture kind of does this to me sometimes. Why was Hannah barren in the first place? Why was she unable to have kids? Look back at verse 5 in chapter 1. It tells us why. End of verse 5, it says, He loved her. Elkanah, her husband, loved Hannah. Though the Lord had closed her womb. You see what that says there? God sovereignly had chosen To close her womb. We don't know why God chose to do that. But what if God closed her womb. So that Hannah would learn. To depend solely on him. And Hannah. We see she's never really going to get to enjoy the fruits of having a son. Once Samuel was weaned. Like toddler age, she gave him away to be trained as a priest in the temple. But Hannah got something better than a son; she got God. And I bet you there is someone listening to this right now, and there is something that you have begged God for. Maybe you have begged Him for years. You've laid up at night weeping. You haven't been able to eat at times because you want this thing so badly. Like you would do anything to have this. I don't know why God has chosen not to give that thing to you. But what if He has chosen not to give it to you because He loves you? Because He wants you to depend solely on Him? And he wants you to turn to the only king worthy of finding your joy in Jesus. Tim Keller says this so well. He says, You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Listen, there are a lot of preachers out there who twist this book. And will tell you, if you come to Jesus, you're going to get blank, 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 blank. That's not what the Bible says. And there are a lot of characters like Hannah who don't get a lot of what they want. If you come to Jesus, the Scriptures tell us, you may or may not get your baby. You may or may not get your marriage. You may or may not get your healing. You may not or you may get the king you're seeking. But you will get the only thing you really need. God. Hannah was able to walk away content. And when she gave birth to her beloved son, she was able to give him back to God. Because in prayer, she left saying, God, you're all I really need. You're all I really want. Nothing else can replace you. You're my king. And friend, until you reach that point of desperation and love and dependence upon God, you will go through this life constantly frustrated. Frustrated at the Penanas who remind you of what you don't have, and frustrated with the Alkanas that just simply will not satisfy this huge hole in your soul. But if you come to Jesus for Jesus alone... You will realize that every other thing wasn't made to satisfy you. Only he was. And that's why Hannah's poem, her song, at the beginning of chapter 2, ends with this realization. She says in verse 6, chapter 2 the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol to death and he raises up. God can give me a baby if he wants to, or he may not. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He can make me rich if He wants to, or He may not. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He can give me honor and prestige if He wants to, or He may lay me down in the dust. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Why can he do all this? Because he holds the earth together. The pillars that hold the universe belong to him. Everything is his, and he can choose to do what he wants. But he's given me the one thing I need, and the thing I didn't deserve, himself. Verse 9, he will go of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah here is singing about and celebrating the thing we need most and the thing God has provided. A king a King worth following. The word King that she uses here is the root of the word Messiah, which means anticipated King. And in our Messiah, in our true King, Jesus, we are given everything we need for joy and contentment in this life. How? Because even though we were the wicked ones, even though sin and our screw ups we should have been the ones cut off in darkness Jesus our king went into the darkness on our behalf though we are the adversaries of the lord who should have been crushed Jesus our king became our champion and he was crushed for us Resurrection, God has established Jesus as the King above all kings, and whom anyone, even a barren nobody like Hannah, can go and have their deepest longings fulfilled. And through Him, through this King, through this Jesus, we have become God's anointed and exalted ones. The point, friends, of Hannah's story, the point of 1 Samuel, the point of 2 Samuel, the point of the entire Bible is getting to know this King, this Jesus. He is the only life and stability and security we really need. The King has come, and He's perfect. And his name is Jesus. Why don't you go to him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so quick to be unsatisfied because I don't have all the things I want. And thank you for your grace that in your love for me, you haven't given them all to me. And God, I so quickly, in my frustration, at your nose, turn to us oh, to numb my pain, to numb my frustration. God, make me a person like Hannah. Help me to be somebody who's humble enough to run to you and just cry. And I confess, I make kings out of everything in my life. Jesus, you're the only thing I want to be my king. You're the only thing that can satisfy me if there's anyone listening now, God, that feels like they've worshipped the wrong king, by your spirit, now lead them to Jesus so they can worship the one king worth worshipping. And, Fathers, we transition to a time of singing. We sing praises to you that you chose to be our glorious king and you always promise and you always deliver. And we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.